This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and I'm very pleased to have as my guest today my friend and colleague, Dr. Rich Shields, who is Professor and Chair of the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Rich, welcome. Thank you, Alan. It's nice to be here, and I look forward to our discussion. As do I. As I've told you before, I really enjoyed this article, and I really want to encourage our listeners to take a look at it. I think it's a first step in a really important area for academic physical therapy. So for our listeners, the title of the study is Benchmarking in Academic Physical Therapy, a multi-center trial using the PTGQ. So let me start by asking you, uh, in your article, you talk about how, unlike medicine, physical therapist education doesn't have any universally applied student-oriented set of outcome metrics. Why do you think that's the case? I, I have to admit, I was rather surprised, if not shocked by that. You know, when you look across the spectrum of academic programs, pharmacy, veterinary medicine, physician assistant, and so forth, some do and some don't in terms of benchmark as a graduation survey. So that essentially, when the student has completed all requirements, and they really are not at any risk in terms of their academic standing, that seems to be a, a very important time to, to capture information. And just historically, when we write an accreditation self-study and so forth, we are clearly required to have metrics in terms of our own outcomes. But ironically, they have not been benchmarked across all schools. So it makes it difficult to understand where you fall among the constellation of other schools across the country. And, you know, maybe it's because, um, you know, we're still, even though, you know, APTA has been around 100 years, we're still uh, developing in certain ways in terms of our academic measurements. But Clearly, we have outcomes that all universities use, but they're not benchmarked where everybody's filling out the same one. And uh, medicine really got a good start on this in the 70s when they started to, to require for accreditation purposes that you start your self-study grounded by where you fall relative to others using common metrics. So for one reason or another, I'm not sure why, to be honest with you, we had never gotten to that point. And that's why this paper, I think, is unique. And the work, honestly, is not done. It's really wave one several years to really understand across all academic programs how they differ. I know from reading your article that at Iowa, you began this work back in 2009. 
I'm assuming that's one of the advantages of being placed in a school of medicine, because you were very familiar with what they've been doing in medicine, and you um, adapted their uh, instrument to, to fit with physical therapy. Is that what got you going in, in this area? Yeah, so there were there were two things that I think are important for your listeners to to realize. One is yes, we're in medicine and so the GQ became very important to me because I was able to benchmark our academic program to the medical graduates. So that gave, you know, obviously we're rubbing elbows with uh, leadership in those various departments in medicine. So for me to better understand how we do relative to medicine was advantageous. But I actually, in 2009, when I started it, and then I started making adjustments to the survey so that it better met uh, the needs of physical therapy, without losing some central uh, parts of the survey that lets us benchmark to other professions. So our original intent was then, well, let's develop some benchmarks across the profession. And the, the history is such that ACAP started to have a similar interest. And so as they went down that road, we didn't want to interfere with that process at all. And then they had basically stopped going down that road. And we published a a paper in 2018 in PTJ about what we were doing. And that's when other schools started to contact us about, hey, could we do this with you? And so that's kind of the way it got started. And even though this publication is on 34 schools, you know, it was actually five schools and then 10 schools as preliminary data to help us refine the process before we actually started the wave one set of studies. So without question, being in the medical school, if you notice, even in our 2018 paper and then this paper, we are benchmarking how physical therapy fares relative to medicine. And that, of course, is important to us at the University of Iowa and the College of Medicine and my dean and, and so forth. So for all those reasons, I think you're right, being in a medical school really teed me up for this type of work. You know, parenthetically, the approach that you're describing is the classic diffusion of innovation approach. You didn't try to get everyone on board to begin with, you started small and then you built off of the early success. And I have seen over the years that so often we try to start on too large a scale and that leads to, to failure. So I, I think it's a great example of diffusion of innovation. Let's talk a little bit about the 34 academic programs who are the, um, the sample for this particular paper. You uh, administered the PTGQ to their graduates in uh, 2019-2020. So I have to say, really bad timing um, to do it just at the start of the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, So that was kind of in the middle of your data collection. How did you get the institutions to agree to do it and to gain their cooperation? Because this had to take some work on their part. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, this is such a good question because it also relates to maybe why it hadn't been done before or why, you know, we didn't get here sooner. Because, you know, to be fair, when you allow your consumers to relinquish information for the benefit of research, I think it's really fundamentally important that there's trust and that that it's under the appropriate guise of research protocols, just like any research we do. And sometimes, you know, we do or we think we can do educational research in a way that softens the the scientific process, but we can't. Uh, We really have to abide by the exact same principles that allow us to do successful NIH-funded research or the like. And so the 34 institutions, I just give tremendous credit to, and as as that benchmarking group that's cited in the paper as co-authors, really deserves that because they were willing to, to take a chance. And, you know, so much of the world is caught up in education with, you know, where are you ranked and, you know, are you in the top five of the U.S. News and World Report? And in fairness, as a scientist, I have a very hard time understanding how those rankings come about, you know, because the metrics that U.S. News uses is is more just a general perception, whereas um, when you get into to graduates, you have some risks there. So somebody is always maybe concerned that, well, is, you know, if our outcomes aren't as strong, is that going to get out and impact? And so it was very important to assure that these data are not only de-identified, but aggregated, and only aggregated data is to be published. Now, in each institution gets their own individual report, but it follows all the same principles of confidentiality and so forth. And it's it was important for me to communicate that these data are not to be used or distributed for purposes of rankings or publicity or so forth, because it can very much contaminate your data source, which are the graduates. And, you know, sometimes institutions are concerned that the graduate is going to be more concerned with graduating from a program that is highly ranked and then suddenly fill things out in a way that may not adequately capture the information. And I took my lead from medicine. No medical school is ranked in U.S. News and World Report or any other ranking based on these graduation questionnaires. And so we really put that out and, you know, recognize something good that was done in another field, you know, but in the final analysis, the 34 schools had to trust that that would happen. And um, I give them all the credit in the world. As I listen to you talk, the parallels with clinical outcome benchmarking and patient-reported outcomes, uh, it's so striking because the same principles and approach apply, and we've been doing it in clinical physical therapy and rehab care for quite some time now. It's really good to see it uh, move into the area of academics. 
you know, some would say, well, these assessments need to be done at the faculty level or at the administrator's level and so forth. And while all measurements have value, I would argue that our students are consumers. And, you know, just like you wouldn't say, well, we need to know what the patients feel about their care. We need to know what the students feel about their academic programs. And but, so- you know, we've run into headwinds on the clinical side with patient-reported outcomes in the same way for many years. So, again, the parallels are quite striking. I agree yes. with you. Students are important consumers, and they're in the best position to provide the kind of data that you're trying to capture. So let's talk about the data for a moment. Uh, I must say, as a measurement person, I was quite struck that you had 257 items, and that covered 14 different dimensions. And it took, on average, I think, around 30 minutes to complete. Yes. And so if you would have told me that information right there, I would have said, good luck, buddy. You're not going to get a very good response rate because that's too many items, too much time covering too much material. Yet, overall, although you had a fair amount of variability, you achieved a 64% response rate, which, in my view, was really outstanding. How, how did you do that? Yeah, um, and again, first and foremost, you have to give credit to the um, academic institutions participating. There's a central theme, I think, among academic uh, programs that understand and, and articulate to their students the importance of professionalism. And at the very heart of professionalism is that when all is said and done, completing assessments about their training is a real measure of professionalism. Because, I mean, if, if, an, if someone is entering a new profession and they don't recognize the importance of providing, you know, uh, feedback about their training, then it, it starts to to venture into the area, have we done a, a good job of creating professionals who take responsibility for, you know, making um, their education even better by providing their feedback. So I think that principle, and I had that discussion with, with a lot of the different centers even, that that principle, you know, when you're admitted into an academic doctoral program, you take with it certain responsibilities. And, and one of those is to help all academic programs become better. Because as you do that, you advance the profession. For every program that has someone who is not happy about their academic program, that affects us all. And so it, it, that was a kind of a, a central theme. But I was... I was thrilled with the um, compliance with the survey. It was, you know, what we had uh, aspired to. And I think it's even more remarkable because there's nothing really tied to it right now. For example, in medicine, you know, believe it or not, graduating medical students are close to 90% compliant on their graduation questionnaire. 
Uh, but it's it's a part of accreditation. I mean, in other words, that has to be available to that institution. And so they impress upon students when they graduate to make sure that this is filled out. So even, you know, under a research protocol, the 60 some percent compliance was wonderful. I'd like to see it move to the 80 percent. Absolutely. But still, keep in mind, you were doing this during the onset of the COVID pandemic. I mean, and you know the the havoc that that has uh, caused research in general across the the fields. Yeah, and and that comes back to the 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 caliber of the institutions that were willing to jump in, and um, you know, in other words, the the survey goes to the students independently, you know, from us, but. You know, if that mindset of the importance of assessment is already instilled in students, then as I thought it, it would be, then um, it, it, it kind of speaks to the principles of taking responsibility that were instilled in, in some of the graduates of these institutions long before we got involved. So I, it's a tribute to them. Well, it's a classic example of positive deviance. Yeah, so it's really great to see. Uh, I want to encourage listeners to take a, a careful look at the article because it covers a tremendous um, range of issues that are assessed by the instrument. Um, we can't talk about all of them today, but I, I plucked out a few that really struck me that I thought would be of interest uh, to our listeners. And the first one has to do with student educational debt. This is an issue that's been written about and discussed a lot in our field. And I think there's some findings in your study that have real bearing on this issue. You found that 28% of the graduates reported educational debt that exceeded 150000 which you have sent as the benchmark beyond which the net present value of a PT, a deep PT degree falls behind other health professions. So almost 30% exceed that benchmark uh, amount. And, And related to that, you talk about how the physical therapy degree uh, because of the, this kind of debt is being priced out of the reach of students from broad socioeconomic backgrounds and, and this is particularly disturbing at a time when we're really focusing on trying to enhance diversity, inclusion, and equity. Uh, any any thoughts on that finding, Rich, uh, as a program director? Yeah, I think, um, and I've written about this previously, I think it's very important that we understand and keep value. And in the denominator of value is some economic investment that we cannot lose sight of. And, you know, this isn't to say, hey, the sky's falling or anything like that. You know, physical therapists and the people that go into physical physical therapy are resourceful. They're going to figure out a way to make ends meet. They're going to cut here. They're going to cut there. They're going to work extra time. They're going to take jobs that not necessarily they want today, but they need to take in order to uh, make ends meet. But I think it's a, it, 
the data supports the, the, an important message that anybody in academia, and I think they are across the board, has to recognize that the underlying, the beauty of this profession, you know, what little to invest to enjoy something for a lifetime. And yet, maybe some are going to be detracted from entering this field because they look at it the way I looked at medicine years ago and said, that kind of money, you know, that, that I just can't swing it. So I think it's, it's very important. And that's also the value of benchmarking because each institution can realize where they fall on that spectrum and maybe use that to make a case to their academic leadership that, you know, if we're preparing for the future of this profession and this academic program, it may behoove us to put together a strategic plan to bring our costs within the realm of the benchmarks so that the net present value of the degree is not getting undermined. Yeah. So, I want to talk with you about one of the findings where you made a comparison with uh, medicine, because there are several that people can look at in the article. But you showed that the PT graduates demonstrated significantly less disengagement than medical students, despite reporting significantly higher levels of exhaustion. Again, that surprised me. Um, What do you think is is behind that finding? Yeah, this is really, I mean, you've, you've picked out just one example of the exciting things that we can pursue from educational research by having a resource like this, even a national resource that others may want to data mine in order to understand the learning environment. Because the finding that we show less disengagement, I don't know the answer to that, but I can say I think it's linked to the fact that our students tend to not disengage as a profession because there's some very outstanding faculty that create an emotional climate that is very sound in in their academic program. However, they're getting pushed in a timeline that leads to significant exhaustion. And, you know, that's a very important finding in that, in fact, we're showing more exhaustion than medical students. And so it makes me start to raise research, future research questions, which we've even added some items to the survey to get at this. What defines or what is the, the thread of that academic program? Things like busy work versus uh, and memorization versus problem solving versus um, some creative ways to learn through episodic memory. Um, So, I mean, we don't know the answer, but what it does is it nicely illustrates how it helps us understand our learning environments and allows us to delve into a lot of ways to study it in the future to understand this principle of um, what drives this level of exhaustion 
yet our students are are made of pretty stern stuff they don't they don't disengage even though they're pretty exhausted and i also attribute that to faculty that create a very stable emotional climate within their institution another uh, finding that really struck me had to do with this concept of tolerance of ambiguity it's not a concept that i've been familiar with so i was really interested in in reading about it and you talk about in your article that in medicine this has been shown as an indicator of student readiness for complexities of what's going on in the healthcare environment. And it's been shown as a correlate of medical student psychologic well-being, which makes perfect sense. In, in this study, you discovered that DPT respondents, the graduates reported significantly lower tolerance for ambiguity than medical students. I found that uh, a worrisome finding, and I wondered what your thoughts were about that. My first take is, yes, it was statistically less and, and statistically different, you know, between the medical students and the PT students. So my first thing would be to say, you know, well, well how big of a change in that scale is meaningful, right? But I do believe the magnitude is meaningful, having looked at the data and so forth. So I think it's a a very important finding. When we quartiled the data, when we looked at it by quartile, over half of the respondents were above the medical school group mean. And then about half of the respondents were below the medical student group mean. So it provides a, an opportunity to really explore through relational analyses, you know, what's, what's driving this and what does it mean? Now, um, you know, this tolerance to uncertainty or ambiguity is, you know, in the, in the um, amidst the pandemic and healthcare, I mean, just really is an important thing to, to understand. And, um, you know, as we, as we look at it even closer, it may even have some associations with those who are becoming exhausted mm-hmm. and, and struggling with some other components of their academic program. You know, I, too, am relatively new to the measurement, but I'm very excited about that measurement because I think it um, is going to give us the opportunity to delve into a lot of the, the um, measurements that are predictive or associated at least with that construct. Um, and and it, could, it could start to open the question, are we, you know, how many, how many candidates um, are there available to the field that would, uh, you know, in other words, do people come in with that skill? Do they come in with an ability to tolerate uncertainty? Or do they learn mm-hmm. to tolerate uncertainty? And that's really the fundamental question because, you know, if we're all, you know, if we're able to recruit people with that, those virtues versus is the academic program actually developing 
uh, that ability to tolerate and that emotional intelligence that comes along with it, then that becomes a very important signature of the academic program. It also struck me that it would be interesting to look at the relationship between tolerance of ambiguity and your finding of those who were ambivalent or negatively disposed to their actual choice to become a physical therapist. You guys haven't looked at that, have you? Well, I can say that um, we've looked at it in our uh, earlier waves, and there appears to be some relationship, but we need to power up in order to really do that. And that's where wave too, where we're now targeting uh, our next cohort of increasing our end from 34 to 70 to 100 schools will give us the power to really draw those relationships where I could, I could say something with more confidence than I can at this point. Well, let's, let's end our discussion with uh, talking about where do you hope this work goes? for the field, if you, if you had your druthers, how do you see this playing out in the years to come? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think there are certain um, common components that, that I would see really important in the future of, of this work. One is we need to make sure that we don't, turn it into such a monetized assessment that it loses the research growth that needs to happen with it. So, you know, I I say that because there are, you know, there are different, you know, measurements that once they become adopted and become a revenue stream, there's always risk that it doesn't have as much incentive to become refined and adjusted and and growth. So I think that would be important and it needs to be available to, to more sites. And so my plan would be to grow. Our plan is to, you know, we've published this wave one this year. Our wave two is triggering 70 to a hundred schools where we would like to publish From that, we would put out relationships between things like tolerance for ambiguity and these these other things. And then wave four would take us up to a real critical mass of maybe 70% of all academic programs. And then the database needs to be assessed longitudinally. That will give us the time to look. When we went from a sample of 10% of all schools 25% of all schools, 50%, 75%, how much much did the the benchmarks change? Mm -hmm. And once we understand what the the variance is from year to year, then we're really on the verge. And I would like to see it become a a standard for writing a self-study for accreditation so that you know, everybody, and, and again, when you benchmark, the beauty of it is, is you would never look at it as being punitive. It's always looked at as a mechanism to improve academic education. 
and give you a nice starting point on, oh my gosh, look, we're falling, you know, two standard deviations below the mean for our profession. Let's start an intervention. To me, it's no different than your workout program. And it's so, I mean, to lie about a workout program would always be a mistake, right? I mean, what, what would be the value of doing that? But to know where you fall relative to others in your age and so forth is an important thing to, to understand maybe how it needs to go through some adjustments. So I'd like to make sure that it doesn't become a part of a, a race to who's number one or who's number two, but it's used as a tool to advance all institutions to rise to the level of quality that really advances the field and the profession and something we can be proud of. Well, thank you for doing this work. I do believe it's really important and it's exciting to hear you talk about where you see it going in the years to come. And thank you for publishing it in PTJ and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about it today. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'd just like to thank you, Alan, and your staff for what a pleasure working with the Physical Therapy Journal to publish this work. I can't think of a, a better venue or a better group of people to work with. So thank you. This is an APTA podcast.